Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Evolving Perspectives in PIC3CA, Related Overgrowth Spectrum, Pros, Diagnosis and Treatment, is brought to you by Axis Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Novartis. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to CME on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. William Mencia, Vice President of Scientific Affairs for Global Learning Collaborative. Joining me today are Dr. Julie Blatt and Dr. Taizo Nakano. Dr. Blatt is co-director of the Vascular Anomalies Center and professor of pediatric hematology oncology at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Dr. Blatt, thank you for being with us today. Glad to be here. We also have Dr. Nakano, who is Medical Director of the Vascular Anomaly Center and Associate Professor of Pediatrics, Hematology, Oncology, and Bone Marrow Transplantation at Children's Hospital of Colorado. Dr. Nakano, it's great to have you with us. I appreciate the invitation. Great to be here. First, a disclaimer and disclosures that we may be discussing off-label use of approved agents or agents that are in development. So it's known that PIC3 CA related overgrowth spectrum or PROS is a group of disorders that are characterized by clinical diagnostic criteria as well as genetic criteria. Can you expand on these criteria and which of these factors do you feel are most clinically significant? All right, well, good afternoon and thanks for joining us. Before we can talk about PROS, however, I think it's important to establish some definitions to make sure we're all on the same page. The International Society for the Study of Vascular Anomalies, ISFA, divides vascular anomalies into vascular tumors, things like hemangiomas, which we won't be talking about, and vascular malformations. Now, conceptually, normal vessels are straight. Veins, arteries, and capillaries carry blood, and lymphatics carry lymph or chyle. Vascular malformations are abnormally formed, sort of snake-like vessels. And this, as you can imagine, changes the flow characteristics and leads to problems as we'll outline. Well, vascular malformations can be composed of one or more types of vessels, as shown in the ISFA schema. Early on, vascular malformation syndromes were classified by phenotype based on physical examination and radiographic evaluation to define the vessel involvement. So by way of further introduction to PROS, we'll run through a few pictures of patients who illustrate some of the findings and spectrum of these disorders. And we'll start with Klippel-Trenowney syndrome, KTS, otherwise known as CVLM, capillary venous lymphatic malformation, is the prototype for PROS. And it's characterized by hemihypertrophy or overgrowth. There are capillary malformations, usually, but not always, in the area of overgrowth. And underlying all of that, there's usually a vascular malformation, which can be venous, lymphatic, or more usually a venolymphatic combination malformation. You can also note these blebs poofing out from the vascular malformation, signaling an underlying lymphatic component. So another example of PROS is cloves. And this was originally clumped with KTS, but is now recognized as distinctive in its own subset of PROS. It's relatively rare. Fewer than 200 cases have been reported to date. Although from my own experience, and I expect from Tizos, I think this is an underestimate. But contrast with something like 15,000 cases of KTS patients in the U.S. CLOVES is an acronym for congenital lipomatous overgrowth, which overgrowth can also be musculoskeletal. 
vascular malformations, epidermoid nevi, and the S is scoliosis, skeletal, and spinal problems. Some of those spinal problems are actually arteriovenous malformations. And I do want to point out the uh, sandal gap toe deformities, which are characteristic, although not pathognomonic. Now, although all pros are thought to be congenital, they're not always obvious at birth. The natural history, we think, of most vascular malformations is one of proportionate growth during childhood uh, until around puberty when the vascular malformations in particular, the overgrowth to some extent, grow disproportionately. And in women, there's a similar bump at the time of pregnancy. So a third example that we'll show is MCAP, megalencephaly capillary malformation syndrome. And that's characterized by macrocephaly, which is really a surrogate for the megalencephaly uh, that figures prominently in a number of pros syndromes. In addition to the macrocephaly, MCAP is characterized by this midline facial capillary malformation, which you can see, and often with associated neurologic problems. So these three examples are a quick introduction to the diversity of phenotypes, which in turn results in diversity of morbidities. So finally, we come to a definition of pros. We'll come back to PIK3CA relatedness in, in great detail. That's the P. Overgrowth, which again is uh, lipomatous as well as musculoskeletal. And the syndrome is also associated with PIK3C related vascular malformations and PIK3C related nonvascular lesions, which are often involved skin involvement as well as sometimes involvement of other underlying organs, such as, in this case, focal cortical dysplasia of the brain. This is a very heterogeneous group of diseases. And in addition to KTS, CLOVES, and MCAP that we've talked about, there's this other alphabet soup of acronyms, which I've listed only to give you an idea for how variable these things can be. They can be as simple as macrodactyly as an isolated finding, the many problems that are seen in CLOVES and some of these other problems. Some of them are easy to recognize, and others may require input from a multidisciplinary team that includes us in pediatric hematology oncology, dermatology, genetics, radiology, sometimes pathology, and we draw in other subspecialists as needed. This is a classification that uh, continues to evolve, and I suspect in the next couple of years, and uh, that we'll be seeing a much longer list. So, Taizo, maybe you can tell us something about the problems these patients face. Yeah, I, I appreciate it, Julie. That was a, a really great background. I appreciate the opportunity to, to expand not just on the, the physical presentation of, of pros conditions, but the, the functional impact of these diseases as well. And, you know, it's not necessarily talking about criteria, but functional phenotyping, the, you know, the impact of disease, which, which is important. So, as, as Julie mentioned, no system is really spared when you think of the diversity of patients involved. And, you know, there are neurocognitive and neurodevelopmental systems. There are organ developments that are impacted and have, can have complications. I'm particularly sensitive as a, as a hematologist to vessel complications, both blood vessels and lymphatics. Uh, Julie mentioned issues with lymphatics. Well, lymphatic leaks can be uh, particularly troublesome and coagulopathies can be life-threatening. It's hard to judge patient to patient what you would consider severity of disease after all. Pain as a complication of disease could be severe. Seizures that are intractable could be severe. Any one of these conditions, if they're bad enough, could be complicated enough to be severe disease. And so I guess my pitch is equal to the physical anomalies is the quality of life impact of these conditions. 
in and of itself is a sign, is a symptom that needs to be judged in the severity of disease and chronic. To separate for a moment, again, can't help myself, hematologist, on one of the one particular complication of disease, coagulopathy. You know, if you find yourself with a, a tangle of vessels, you can only imagine that blood needs to keep moving. And if it hits the traffic jam, if it doesn't have flow, well, blood's going to clot. Yeah, the endothelium of these vessels is really different. They're very activated. And if you have clot, maybe locally, it's frustrating to have the chronic pain associated with little calcified clots called phleboliths. But I'll tell you, if there's a direct conduit to the deep venous system, a direct connection from that malformation to the deep venous system, then you risk more life-threatening complications. You risk deep venous thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. And, and that's significant morbidity and mortality just to convey the life-threatening nature of some of the complications of this disease. So getting back to the question you asked about difficulties in making the diagnosis, it's, it's not so easy. There are a lot of overlapping features. Just think how many subspecialties a patient could present to. Dermatologic findings, masses that go to oncologists, surgeons, and they're going to be diagnosed differently, treated differently, depending on the subspecialty they may present to. And even within those subspecialties, think about the lack of consensus that exists right now in the field. That there's very few prospective natural history studies to tell us the outcome of these conditions. And so we've evolved in diagnostic tools nowadays to involve not just a clinical diagnosis with phenotyping or even radiographic, but to really get to a genetic diagnosis. That's really the reason Dr. Blatt and I got interested in this field was to take and revolutionize this field and have a molecular component to, to its diagnostic abilities. There's certainly a renaissance of, of molecular genetics that's redefining vascular anomalies right now and changing names from conditions like cloves and MCM that were mentioned to PIK3CA variants named after the molecular defect they're diagnosed after. Now is the time to change diagnosed vascular anomalies by genetic variants that drive this dynamic activity that they have. To, to talk about genetic pathways or protein pathways, but we can now define several vascular anomalies by the genetic defects in the signaling cascade represented in this slide. These are, these are signaling cascades related to angiogenesis and growth and increased metabolism. And the focus today will just be on those involved with PI3K, uh, which is the protein encoded by PIK3CA. We'll use those terms kind of interchangeably. And just be amazed at how many vascular anomalies have been associated with proteins on this pathway. These are defects that increase the function of that growth, that metabolism. And it's really the key to unlocking the pathophysiology of disease here. So this is a preview of kind of this renaissance of molecular genetics in the field. So thank you for that comprehensive overview, especially as we understand the genetic component of PROS. So we know that some of these somatic activating mutations of PIK3CA can cause a series of heterogeneous changes in a patient. These changes are wide ranging. So can you explain for us the importance of utilizing next generation sequencing versus maybe other methodologies for the molecular diagnosis of these disorders of PROS? And what are the clinical indicators that you get from these sequencing data? These are really great questions. I'm really glad to have the opportunity to provide maybe a little bit of background before we get into the actual genetic testing, some terminology that I think will be helpful. You know, before 
I send a genetic test with the family. I think that this can be sometimes a scary subject and some terms need to be defined to really help them get grasp what we're going after. Although some medical conditions are germline and therefore heritable from a mother and father, these prose conditions are somatic, acquired. So a somatic condition is acquired genetic insult that happens early in development, but this is not passed on from the mother and father to the patient. And this is not something that we expect the patient to pass on to their children. And again, that's kind of where there's this scariness that gets involved that you really need to clarify. It's a somatic variant in a select number of tissues that was acquired after the sperm and egg came together. The second term I would put out there is mosaic. So this variant only impacted a select number of cells. So there is an asymmetric pattern, an asymmetric growth of that abnormal population of cells in a mosaic distribution around the body. So different areas of the body may be impacted, but not all. Lastly, the term I would uh, describe is gain of function. So that the insult that these cells have undergone had increased activity, increased growth, increased angiogenesis, increased metabolic activity. And so within a acquired somatic variant that is in a mosaic distribution throughout the body that is causing an overgrowth or increase in function of metabolic activity. I feel like that's a nice foundation to give families before you then ask them to undergo testing. Dr. Black, maybe you could give us a background on how you would approach genetic testing for these conditions. Sure. And I should start by saying that not everybody needs testing or needs testing off the bat, although genetic testing is often helpful for confirmation of diagnosis and for treatment. However, I think all of us would agree that phenotype trumps genotype. And sometimes we have a patient with pros who has not been tested or who has not been, doesn't even have a PIK3CA mutation. So having said that, most patients are offered genetic testing at some point. The way we go about getting tissue is summarized on the left. And that's important, as Tizel said, to get tissue that's involved because these gene mutations are somatically or mosaically expressed. They're only present in some tissue. Often getting that tissue is as easy as a punch biopsy or skin biopsy of a capillary malformation. Sometimes it requires a bigger surgical biopsy. A current area of research is using cell-free DNA from blood or lymph to do testing on, but that really is not something that's commercially available just yet. Once we get tissue, we have to know what to ask for. And sometimes we'll ask for a single gene, such as, gee, just look for PIK3CA mutations. And sometimes we'll ask the lab to do a complete panel, that is PIK3CA, as well as other genes in its signaling pathway. And sometimes we'll look for the pathways that Taizo did not emphasize, but can be important in our vascular malformations syndromes. We want to optimize testing based on cost as much as other things, but also to look for the very low frequency of these allelic mutations, which can be in as few as 1% of cells in a sample that's given to the laboratory. Now, the other thing we want to do in order to optimize that is know what testing is around. And there are two methods that are in vogue for genetic testing right now. One is the Sanger method which sequences typically a single DNA fragment at a time. The next one, which we hear a lot about, is next-generation sequencing, or NGS. And that has the advantage of being able to sequence hundreds or even thousands of genes at one time, although we often use it for more limited panel. One of the things we like to do with it, even for a single gene or small panel of genes, 
so-called deep sequencing. And that's just a way of looking at large numbers of cells, because sometimes these samples that we give to the lab don't have too many cells that are involved with the mutation. And so we have to use something that can look at very large numbers of cells to optimize things. Fortunately, I've got to say that neither Tizo nor I are the ones who are the arbiters of what testing is used. That's the laboratory. So although it's worth knowing this terminology, that really has very little to do with us on a day-to-day basis. Once in a while, we get back from the lab, even after all of this, an answer that is not helpful. Either there's not a mutation at all, or the mutation is something other than what we expected. And what we do have to do is to consider whether we need to ask the lab to reevaluate either the same sample, whether we need to re-biopsy a patient, or once in a blue moon, we go to a different laboratory. A lot of these decisions don't have anything to do with us either. They reside with the insurance companies because these are very expensive tests, and sometimes we do have limitations. All right, so having said that, most phenotypic pros patients will have PIK3CA mutations. And PIK3CA is a gene that's present on chromosome 3. And it's important to recognize that the vast majority of pathogenic PIK3CA variants, about 85% of them, occur in limited areas called hotspots. Interestingly, these hotspots are the same hotspots seen in adult cancers, things like breast cancer or melanoma. But unlike the clonal expansion that are seen in cancers, these mutations, as I've said, are present in relatively small numbers of cells. Cancers may have 80 or 90% of cells expressing the mutation. That's not the case in our patients. And that just, again, emphasizes the need to do NGS. This is CME on ReachMD, and you're listening to Evolving Perspectives in PIK3CA-related overgrowth spectrum, diagnosis and treatment. I'm joined here today by Dr. Blatt and Dr. Nicano, and we are discussing potential treatments for pros-related abnormalities. So to date, pros treatment has been limited primarily then to managing its clinical manifestations, usually involving endovascular or surgical procedures. But we know that these procedures don't eliminate the frequent regrowth that we see in pros. And unfortunately, that means multiple surgeries for our patients. So can you go through what some potential treatments are that may currently be under investigation and the impact that these treatments might have on these patients with pros? And I'm also curious as to your perspective as to how far along these agents are and as they become available, where can we expect them to be used in terms of sequencing? Excellent. Well, I'll I'll come to all of those things, but I do think it's important to remember some of the issues that you talked about already, which is that there are interventions that have been used historically uh, to treat pros, but they continue to be important and they have nothing to do with genetics. That includes supportive care, which I've listed sort of alphabetically, anticoagulation to take care of the problem of uh, localized intralesional coagulation that Tizel mentioned before, compression garments, decompression massage, nutrition, other pain medications, psychologic support. And the procedural interventions remain at the forefront of treatment. And that includes surgery, both for biopsy, for resection or debulking, and vascular interventional radiology, where our VIR colleagues with a patient asleep may put in a catheter and inject some stuff that causes the lesions to sclerose or shrink down. Sometimes it freezes them. So 
importantly, as you said, none of these is curative. Even with surgery, these things grow back. And this has pushed all of us to think about better treatment options. And going back to the slide that Taizo showed before, the emphasis for the past 10 years or so has been on finding drugs that target pathogenic genes. And we hope, but don't yet know, that such treatment will be the answer. This is where PIK3CA, the P of pros, becomes so important. In truth, however, we've been targeting this pathway for a long time, even before we knew that PIK3CA was the driver. The initial focus was really on mTOR at the bottom of the pathway. And so serolimus is a P10 or end mTOR inhibitor. It's an oral drug that's been used for decades to, as an immunosuppressant to prevent rejection in organ transplant patients. Through some fortuitous observations, it was found to be helpful in vascular malformations and has really been the core of treatment of vascular anomalies, both malformations and some vascular tumors, since 2008. This is a picture from a, an early, relatively early, phase two study by Denise Adams and her colleagues at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. It shows a patient from that study who had a lymphatic malformation of his tongue. And within, you can see these lymphatic webs coming out here, and you can imagine how painful they must be, and they, they were and are. That patient was started on serolimus, and within a couple of weeks or a couple of months at most, many of these started to go away. The patient began to feel better, and over time, they went away completely. Now, since that time, there have been other clinical trials to look at the efficacy and safety of serolimus. PROMISE is one trial that looked at low-dose serolimus for six months, and that confirmed its effectiveness, but also pointed out some inadequacies and additional side effects that we did not know about quite so readily. The VASE trial, vascular anomalies, serolimus in Europe, is a phase three trial, and it's ongoing. It's important that serolimus sometimes shrinks vascular malformations quite a bit, but a lot of times it doesn't. It shrinks at a small amount. It's helpful with the overgrowth up to a point, but very best, it does not cause regression of the overgrowth for the most part. And so the search for ongoing drugs goes on. And on this slide, we summarize some vascular malformation uh, targets and therapies that are in use, that have been developed, that are being developed. And the, the gene that we've been most focused on, as I've noted, is PIK3CA. And the drug that clearly is at the forefront right now is alpelacib. Like serolimus, it's an oral medication. And uh, there are uh, ongoing clinical trials that Taizo and I are part of. We'll be talking about those in a minute. Interestingly, over the past couple of months, alpelacid has been FDA approved for patients with pros, even when they have not had documentation of a genetic abnormality. The field is, also includes other PIK3CA uh, inhibitors. VT30 was a topical preparation that was in a trial that's now been closed and stopped. I'll get back to that in a minute. And there are other genes and other pathways that we and others are trying to, to target. AKT is targeted by a drug called Mirinsertib, also oral, and one that was in several clinical trials that have now been aborted. MEK is targeted by trametinib. This is a drug that we use frequently, both in adult cancers and in pediatric cancers and we're struggling to start up some clinical trials in pediatrics. These trials are, uh, have been hard to fund. Uh, they're multi, they have to be multi-centered because these are rare uh, entities, uh, and that's been difficult. 
So maybe, Taizo, I can ask you to talk a little bit more about Dalpelisib to give the audience an idea about where our success uh, lies at this point. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I really appreciate uh, the Seralimus story. It is truly one of the foundation. Of, it's one of the most impactful stories of our generation uh, in the field of hematology oncology and its role in vascular anomalies. The Seralimus story really is the, the first repurposing of drugs for the better of our field of vascular anomalies. And, you know, although it was great to target downstream of some of the variants we knew about, you know, what we really would love to do is target personalized medicine, right? Target the variant that you have. So if the story is pick through CA variants, then the goal of personalized medicine would be to target those variants. And Apelisib is an equally exciting story of drug repurposing. You know, so here's a medication that already had FDA approval for the use in oncology, primarily to treat adult breast cancers, uh, and yet it's a PIK3CA inhibitor. So images on this slide are from a really impactful article that colleagues in France carried out a pilot study to test the impact of this PIK3CA inhibitor on children with cloves and other PIK3CA-related overgrowth syndromes. And so 19 patients were in this pilot study, and it had tremendously impactful results. Uh, there were clinical improvements in radiologic responses in, in all patients documented. They were intractable vascular tumors became smaller, and heart conditions were improved. Uh, hemihypertrophy was reduced, and scoliosis attenuated. These were distributed you know, nationally, internationally, and really led to a buzz between physicians and families needing to expand trials in, for this study. And so this was the first study that provided evidence supporting PIK3CA inhibition as a promising agent, you know, as a promising strategy. And it moved from kind of supportive care and functional help to the actual thought of regression of disease, which is pretty amazing. So the, the first study that was done uh, was called the EPIC P1 trial. Uh, this was a real-world retrospective collection of experience. It was, it was a chart review experience of what patients had experienced on this medication beyond a pilot study. This is one that we, patients were looked at. They had experience on this medication for greater than 24 weeks, and they were looking for reduction in the size of lesions. So as a target goal of reducing greater than 20% the size of a lesion, 12 out of 32 patients demonstrated that, that goal. But interestingly, 74% of those patients total had some reduction in the size of the lesion. And this was a study that really was looking at safety as well as efficacy, finding minimal impact on fatigue and some hyperglycemia that we've started to learn how to monitor. But as Julie alluded to, this culminated very recently in the FDA accelerated approval for the treatment of adults and pediatric patients greater than two years of age and older with severe manifestations of pros with alpelisib. So this is really exciting for our field. I kind of feel like the FDA approval of a PIK3CA targeted medication for vascular anomalies is the single validation of our existence as hematology oncologists in this field to be able to target a lesion and, and produce a productive result is, is really empowering. Right now, what's, what's exciting is that there are a couple of expanded trials to really solidify this and give us the pharmacokinetics data that we need to carry this medication further. So the EPIC-P3 trial is simply the extension trial to the EPIC-P1. Patients that had been followed retrospectively are now following prospectively to continue to see what long-term impact of the condition have. 
In addition, and probably most importantly, is the EPIC P2 trial, with both Julie and I have it open at our centers. This is the prospective efficacy and safety trial that we need for the PIK3CA inhibitor alpelicin. And so it is really exciting to take this trial forward and actually get you the dosing and pharmodynamics and pharmacokinetic data that is necessary to move this forward. So that was certainly a very fascinating overview of the therapeutic approach. But could we take a moment to maybe put this into the context of real patient care and maybe walk us through a patient case example? Most certainly. Yeah, I I happen to bring a case with me, one of my own patients, to share with you all. So this here is Elena. Elena was born with spinal defects, abdominal lymphatic malformations, and right foot deformity that needed amputation eventually, and hemimegencephaly that was complicated by epileptic seizures. Early in life, she underwent hemispherectomy and VP shunt placement for intractable epilepsy. You know, she's 14 now. She's about to start high school, and but she's lived a life of kind of progressive facial and extremity asymmetry and overgrowth. And she has actually seen more than the average individual share of surgical debulkings and lipomatous overgrowth resections that continue to re-expand and be re-resected. It is in this last decade that we've uh, been able to diagnose her from a phenotypic diagnosis of cloves to a molecular diagnosis of PIK3CA variant related overgrowth condition. I would ask Dr. Blatt, how, how familiar does this story sound? And you know, what, what do you think of the symptoms that need to be addressed when I talk about my patient here? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Elena is more severe than many patients, but she is typical of the complex multi-organ involvement that um, most of our pros patients have. I think recognizing the spectrum of history and physical exam helps us make a diagnosis and plan diagnostic studies. That includes blood work, radiographs, genetic studies. But a number of patients who develop signs and symptoms like Elena's don't necessarily have them initially. And it's important to realize that the manifestations evolve over time. I suspect that some of Elena's problems weren't even present or weren't appreciated at first. Is that the case, uh, Taizo? That's correct. Yes, there was an evolution. So, you know, when when I think of, you know, her care at our institution and the multidisciplinary team that's had to care for her, you know, I'm curious... Dr. Black, who who would you recruit to be her team? Who do you think needs to be involved in the care of such a patient like this? Absolutely. So this is clearly a multidisciplinary situation. Uh, in, in, In Elena, she certainly needed neurosurgery and neurology initially. At our center, and I suspect at yours, we would ask for help from our vascular interventional radiologists for her lymphatic malformation and her abdomen. And in fact, our VIR docs see almost all of our pros patients, and sclerotherapy remains a big part of things. In addition to neurosurgery, we would enlist the help of other surgeons, plastic surgery for her face, maybe for debulking of her back. And those are probably multidisciplinary in addition. That is, ENT would probably help plastics. General pediatric surgery would help plastics looking and trying to debulk her back and such. Orthopedics for her feet and other deformities, maybe orthotics. As a rule, even though we can make the diagnosis, we usually like to get genetics involved. And you can see on uh, on the slide the capillary malformation on the side. And uh, interestingly, a lot of my patients find that to be the most distressing thing. And so dermatology gets involved for laser therapy. So this is multidisciplinary, and we don't want to forget about psychology because body image is a big deal for these kids. You know, in in the last decade, I feel like 
her definition of disease has changed from a cloves community to a PIC3CA related overgrowth community. And, you know, I feel like a, a world of surgical and interventional history, you know, potentially moves to targeted therapy. I may put you on the spot, Dr. Vlad. What, what, how would you treat her? Well, so in addition to the multidisciplinary approach and to symptom management, as we talked about before, drug therapy is a big focus at most centers. Uh, certainly, it has evolved over time, and a 14-year-old like Elena, when she first presented, would not have had many options or any options besides serolimus. So I suspect she was treated with serolimus. That's certainly how I would have treated her. A child like this would might have some benefit from serolimus, but it clearly is not going to be be enough. And in 2022, alpelacib would be number one on our list, I, I suspect. I, I'm assuming that that's what's uh, in the works, Taizo. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think the discussion has come up uh, increasingly over the last year. This is an amazing rock star kid who's about to start high school. And the thought of a clinical trial schedule or even a lab frequency schedule while on a pellicid at the moment is actually the last thing from her mind, given that she's been able to embrace her diagnosis, embrace her condition, and, and become quite functional. But I think that it is in her generation that we're really excited for to continue to be able to offer the opportunity to have targeted therapy. This is a girl in a family that's got their eye on the EPIC-P2 trial, and they're really interested in seeing some of the safety data before moving forward. But, you know, you and I will work hard to provide that for them. So it's pretty exciting. The one thing I did want to add, Taizo, is that this is a good age to treat because one thing we can't do is have somebody who's looking at pregnancy be on either serolimus or alpilocib or probably any of the other drugs that we can imagine. So it's nice to get some control of disease before before pregnancy. The other one that I would add to that is, you know, the fact that she's just started and kind of into puberty. And we are well aware that during times of development with great hormonal change that we see exacerbations in underlying overgrowth conditions. And so I think it's very fair in my mind that I'm thinking of children and the impact of this condition pre versus post puberty. And that'll be something we'll have to study going forward. So let's wrap up our discussion today. If there are some key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with, what would those be? Yeah, great. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. Well, I would say that when first seeing a patient, I like to remind myself of what the diagnostic options are. And so I go to the ISFA website, which is sort of a summary for me. And certainly when I first started seeing patients like this, I used it frequently. I still continue to do that. In many respects, I think as with many aspects of medicine, we go back to the basics. We want to take a detailed history, do a detailed physical exam because these diseases are all-encompassing. We want to establish where a patient is and where they're likely to be going. So it's helpful to know how involved a patient's disease is. And patients, we think, who are sick when we see them are going to continue to be sick. We don't necessarily know that. But patients who are, let's say, preschoolers who might not be sick, we know that getting closer to puberty and then pregnancy for the girls, may uh, the tempo of the disease may change. One of the things I like to do is remind uh, parents that they can contribute by taking serial photos of, uh, of the kids. A lot of our families don't like to come in all the time. They live a distance. And even with telemedicine, it's often harder than just doing a physical exam in person. So serial photos do help. And then the other thing I'd like to emphasize is that most of us believe that these kids should be followed at some level in a multidisciplinary dedicated vascular anomalies clinic. Now that means different things at different centers, but in our center, 
we usually have patients see two or three of us, our vascular interventional radiologist and pediatric hematology oncology, sometimes dermatology, almost inevitably sees the patient all on the same day. And then we farm them out to other, uh, other clinics as need, need be. So our, our surgeons, our radiologists, and this kind of thing. I don't know how that plays with you in Colorado, Faisal. Maybe you could mention, uh, talk about that and give some of the other pearls here. Yeah, I, I guess for me, it, it does come back to recognizing the importance of the functional impact, the quality of life of the patient. I would go so far as to say that the best outcome measure of any drug or any medication or intervention we could do is the quality of life measure. Listen to the patient, you know, listen to the family in their own words. What is the impact of their condition? I think you'd be surprised how many aren't necessarily interested in a large area of tissue shrinking versus that the pain went away that they were able to be more functional, mobile. These are the measures that I think if you work with families and family advocacy groups that we hear over and over. So I would encourage uh, practitioners to really start finding measures, uh, even if it's formal, such as surveys, uh, patient-reported outcome measures that can give you an indication how well you're doing in response to therapies that you choose to do. And I would give a shout out to the patient support groups who have really helped guide us in how we design clinical trials and how we advocate for patients' families. I would like to say that, you know, guidelines for these diagnoses are not yet available, but they're coming. Keep an eye out. They're they're in development. Those are certainly some great comments for us to pause and reflect on as we come to the end of today's program. I want to thank my guests for helping us better understand pros, Dr. Blatt, Dr. Nakano. It was great speaking with both of you today. Thanks for having us. Yes, pleasure to be here. This activity was brought to you by Access Medical Education and is supported by an educational grant from Novartis. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.